here we are today in our study in the book of Acts. And, uh, you know, I'm excited as we make our way through this book of Acts because it's really, it's, it's the picture of the birth and the expansion of the church in the early days. But it's not just a history of what happened back then. It's also uh, a picture for us of what God wants to do from generation to generation. And so we're looking at it from uh, that standpoint as well. So the text, we come this morning to this passage here where we read now about uh, the outcome of that outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So remember previously, we, um, we saw how uh, it was on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost celebrated the beginning of the harvest, how it was on that day that God poured out His Spirit and the people that were there from all of the different nations, they gathered around to see what that phenomena was. Peter was able to tell them, this is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. God's pouring out his spirit upon all flesh. And then, you know, Peter began to preach the gospel to them. He began to tell them about uh, Christ who came and who suffered and died and rose again. And as, um, you know, Peter is preaching to them, it says that they're, they're pierced in their hearts and they cry out, you know, men and brethren, what, what must we do? And Peter calls them to repentance. And so that day, as we saw, 3,000 people were added to the church. Now, this is the first time in Acts that the word church appears. And it's actually only the fourth time in the New Testament thus far that the word church appears. So, you know, we are familiar with the church. We talk about the church and there's much that is said about the church in the pages of the New Testament, but up until this point, there's only been three other references to the church, and they all are in Matthew's gospel, and they all came from Jesus. Matthew 16, Jesus said, uh, upon this rock, I will build my church, and then in Matthew 18, Jesus then again referred to the church um, in a passage there where he references it twice. But now here, as this new day is dawning, we read that the Lord added to the church. So this, this new thing that's happening is now being identified as the church. Now, remember, up until this point, for many centuries now, God's primary means of, of witness for himself in the world is the people of Israel. He set them aside as a nation. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. He established a covenant with them. He did great signs and wonders among them and you know, gave them promises and a kingdom through David and so forth. And, and so it was through the nation that God was communicating through uh, or to the world at large. Now that time has come to a conclusion and now there's a new means through which God is going to communicate his truth to the world, and that is through this thing called the church. Now, the church, the word church, is the Greek word ekklesia. And this was a common word that referred to a gathering of citizens who were called out from their homes to a public place for a meeting of whatever sort, you know, maybe to discuss the policies of the community or whatever, but, but it was a group of people called out. That was the idea behind it. So the New Testament writers, they took this 
common word, the ecclesia, and now they applied it to the believers. And it is appropriate because the church or the, in the Christian sense, the ecclesia are a gathering of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are the citizens of heaven, but yet are called out of the world to be worshipers and servants of the one true God. So now from this point forward, this is how that body of people will be identified as the called out ones. That's the best way to probably just summarize uh, the meaning of the word. And so here we read in the verses that we went over together, we read about what this group of people, this 3,000 that uh, repented and put their faith in the Lord, we read about how they began to function in those days. And there are four fundamental uh, things that they engaged in that we want to look at. And, and then from those four fundamental things, other things proceeded. And so that's how we want to consider it today. We want to look, first of all, at those four fundamentals, and then we want to look at what uh, proceeded from that, what the outcome was uh, of, of their engaging in those fundamentals. So the first thing that we note is that they continued steadfastly, or they devoted themselves to, is another way to read it, uh, to the apostles' doctrine or to the apostles' teaching. The word doctrine simply means teaching. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is what they did. So they began now to gather together regularly and to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching is what we find in the pages of the New Testament. And of course, we could include in that, we could uh, tack all of the scripture onto that. I mean, to put it kind of, even more simply, they, they devoted themselves to the study of the scriptures. They devoted themselves to an understanding of the word of God. And this is not just what they did, but this is what every successive generation of Christians is to do. So the church is to be marked by its devotion to study of and uh, application of the teaching of scripture. Now that seems to, I'm sure most of you, to be like, uh, you know, as we say, kind of like a no-brainer. Well, of course, that's what you do at church. You study the Bible, right? Well, that seems so obvious, but you know, the amazing thing is um, that is a fairly rare experience in churches, and all throughout the history of the church, there's been this battle to maintain a focus on scripture. And whenever the church has veered away from a focus on scripture, it always finds itself in trouble. It always finds itself confused and compromised and weak and ineffective in a culture. Whenever the, the, the church focuses on the scriptures, the church is strong and vibrant and impactful in the culture. So this idea of devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, this isn't an idea that we came up with. This is the picture in the scripture of what uh, the church is to be involved in. This is what the church is to engage in uh, amongst ourselves. So 
First of all, the apostles' teaching. Secondly, the fellowship. The fellowship. That means that as God's people, we are to come together. Uh, You know, you can't live as a Christian independent of other Christians. You can't do it. It's not, you're you're never going to be healthy. You're never going to be strong. You're never going to be vibrant. You're never going to flourish in your life spiritually if you try to live independent of other believers. And so we see that they understood that. They engaged. They continued in the fellowship. They came together. The word uh, is koinonia in the Greek. And the, the word is a little bit hard to translate with any one English word. So here it's translated fellowship. and other places, it's translated communion, the idea of community, the idea of sharing. All of those things are, are part of this. So the picture is that they came together and they devoted themselves to the study of the scripture and to ministering to one another, to the fellowship, to the building up and the encouragement and the sharing of the gifts of God with one another. And then thirdly, it says the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread here, I think, is a reference to what we commonly call communion or partaking in the Lord's Supper. Now, later on here in the passage, it talks about them actually having uh, meals with one another. And that was part of what they did as well. Uh, And part of that was because of the the situation there that I'll talk about in a moment that was kind of unique to what we're reading about here. Uh, People from all over the world, they're in Jerusalem. They're there temporarily. And so some of it had an application just to them. But here, the breaking of bread we can broaden that and understand that as worship because that's what the breaking of bread is. When we have communion, when we share together in the bread and the cup, we're worshiping the Lord, right? We're giving him thanks. Um, Oftentimes, uh, the reference is to the Eucharist. The word Eucharist, some people get a little panicked about that. It sounds so Catholic, you know, talking about the Eucharist today. The word Eucharist means giving of thanks. That's all it means. So the, the idea is that through the breaking of bread, the sharing in the Lord's supper, if you will, that was their expression of worship together. So they're studying God's word. They're in fellowship, building each other up. They're worshiping together. And then fourthly, it says that they continued in prayers. So they prayed together. They understood the importance of prayer. They were committed to prayer. They knew that they needed prayer. They knew that uh, the world needed the intervention of God and that that was going to happen through prayer. So these are the fundamental things that they engaged in. And as a result of that, certain other things happened. And I want you to notice in verse 43, the very first word is then. And this is an important point because what you have are these foundational things. And for, for those Christians and those congregations who establish themselves in those foundational things, then other things happen. 
So you see, the other things are, in a sense, a result of having a firm commitment to these fundamental things. You know, we're always looking for ways to try to grow the church or ways to try to reach more people. And quite often, we're trying all different kinds of things that really, in the end, don't have that great of an impact. You know, it's really not about how many people you can cram in a building. That's, that's really not the objective. The point is disciple-making. That's, that's what we're called to do. We're called to make disciples of people, not just to get people to come to church. And, you know, today, I, I think there are a lot of people that, that miss that. You know, they, you know, coming to church is what it's all about. Now, coming to church is fantastic if, as you come, you are being discipled. You're growing. You're being taught. You're being challenged. You're really having those opportunities to fellowship. You're really engaging in worship and in prayer. If that's happening, that's great. But if it's just uh, you know, an event that people are attending, well, we're missing the point. But when we take those fundamentals and we root ourselves in them, there are going to be things that proceed from that. And verse 43 through the end tells us what they are. Fear came upon every soul. The word fear could be translated awe. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Miraculous things were going on. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So we see that there was a a caring and a compassion and a sharing and obviously a giving as well. And then it says, so continuing with one accord, there was a unity in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. There was a joyful atmosphere. They were praising God. They had favor with all the people. They were respected in the community. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So the main point that I want to make to us today is that If we are faithfully committed to the fundamental things, we can expect that there's going to be fruit that proceeds from it. But listen, we have to make sure that we do not see the fundamental things as just an end in themselves. And this is what inevitably often happens. We often make the mistake of thinking that the end of the Christian life is just the the congregational gathering. That as long as I went to a Bible study, I fulfilled my duty. As long as I had some worship, I fulfilled my duty. As long as I prayed, I fulfilled my duty. And when we start to think of it like that, it's only a matter of time before everything stagnates. We have to understand that these things are the means through which we attain the greater goal of glorifying God and advancing the gospel. So that's the purpose behind the commitment to the fundamentals, that from our commitment to these things, God's kingdom is going to be advanced. We're going to to move forward. Over and over and over in the history of the church, the, the church has a tendency to settle into a complacency, to settle into a comfortable 
kind of a zone, you know, where we basically just say, hey, it's all good in here. We're, we're doing well. We're all loving Jesus and we're having a great time, but we lose sight of the world that's out there perishing. And we have to be on our guard. We have to recognize that these things are a means to the greater end. They're not an end in and of themselves. But as, as we kind of look back over these um, different things that are mentioned in verses 43 through 47, I want us to see the things that sort of mark the church. And so starting with the first four, what we see, number one, is that the church is a, uh, it's a community of believers who are learning about God. Now this is, you know, think about this with me for a second. Where in the where in the world can you go to learn about God? There's one place that God has designated for people to come and learn about him, and that is the church. The church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth, according to Paul writing to Timothy. And so this is the place, God's church is to be a place where people can come and learn about him. You know, you go to a university today, you're not really gonna learn much about God. Many, many times you're going to uh, be, or, or at least a, an attempt's going to be made to convince you that there is no God. And that's true in every facet of the culture, especially in the days that we're living in. So where can I go to find out about God? Well, the church is the place. And, and we should be recognized as a, in a sense, as a learning center. You know, Christians, by virtue of their faith in Christ should be becoming wiser and smarter and more intelligent as time goes on, because that's what happens when the word of God uh, takes hold in our lives. C.S. Lewis said that no, that as a Christian, you didn't need a particular education because Christianity was an education in and of itself. And it's so true. As we take God's word and as we begin to study it and learn it, we learn about history. We learn about uh, sociology. We learn about psychology. We learn about all of these things, but we learn about it from the right perspective. We learn about it from God's perspective. So the church is marked as a place of learning, but also it's a loving environment. That's what should uh, be the experience of those who come in that they are walking into an atmosphere of love. And that is with the word fellowship that we already looked at. It's a worshiping uh, community. The church is marked by, by worshiping. We're worshiping God. You know, I often think if we can't worship God in the church, where can we worship him? And sometimes in, in certain church environments, uh, there you know, there, it can be very restrictive on, on how people express themselves in worship. Now, I do agree that, you know, we need to be careful not to, to be distracting to other people through our worship. You know, maybe if I believe that uh, I'm worshiping God by doing backflips down the front aisle or something, you know, that could be a bit of a distraction. So maybe I should not do that. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there, there, are, there are places where any kind of expression of worship is, is just sort of like, no, we don't do that here. And my question is, well, if we don't do that here, where do we do that? Of course, we should be able to do that within reason. Uh, a worshiping community and a praying 
community. So these are the four things, the, the fundamentals here, uh, learning, loving, worshiping, praying. But now I want you to notice that there was a reverence or there was an awe. It says fear fell upon them. And the, the fear here is not a, f- a fear like you're frightened, but it's a, there was a sense of awe. You see, this was, a, this, this was something different. Now, remember, these people were gathering in the portico of the temple of Solomon. But there is something noticeably different about this group and their gathering. I mean, there's this whole temple worship thing going on. There's a priesthood and there's sacrifices and there's all of this magnificence. And yet it just, there's no power to it. There's no, nothing awesome about it anymore because it's all just a, uh, it's just a routine. It's just a religious routine. But now with this group of people, there's something vibrant. There's something happening. And there's a sense that God is there. And this should be the case in our churches. Our churches should be a place where people sense the presence of the Lord, that there is just something different that you know when you walk in or when you, you know, even when you come on to the grounds. I pray as I cross the grounds throughout the week for different reasons. I always pray, Lord, I pray that your presence would be here so that even when people just come onto the parking lot, that they will sense that there's something different about this location. There's an awe. There was an awe among them. There was a reverence. We see that they were a powerful church in that many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So there was supernatural activity. We've talked about this a little bit already. There's the power of God that is there doing things that are blessing people. There's healing taking place. There's miraculous kinds of things going on. And again, these are the things that should mark the church. And so we have to ask if there is nothing supernatural happening, if there are no miraculous things going on, if we're not really experiencing um, answers to prayer and, and things like that, you know, what, what is happening with us? Because that, th- this is one of the things that should mark the church. You know, I was in Cyprus just this past week, as I mentioned, and I was talking to the pastor, Tim. And from last year, they have now relocated to a new place. And when, when I was with them last year, they were meeting in a, a residential area. And it was a beautiful fellowship and a really sweet little thing. But it was, you know, like in, you know, somebody's neighborhood. Uh, and it was, wasn't the most easily accessible place. And it wasn't a place that the average person was necessarily going to see. And so we talked about how great it would be for them to be out in a, in a space that was more accessible. So he took me and he showed me this one like dilapidated hotel and said, hey, you know, we could get this for a certain amount of money and probably could fix it up. And I thought, well, that would be a nightmare. So we kind of just passed on that. But anyway, so it came back this year, come to find out they're in a, they're in a new building. They're right on the main street. They've got plenty of space. And I'm looking at this saying, wow, this is amazing. This is everything we kind of talked about, except you don't have that massive project that you would have had to, you know, try to figure out how you were going to make it work. And I said, so what happened? He said, you know, 
the funny thing was, this thing just suddenly came up and we had an opportunity to get it and we had zero money. But I just felt like we were supposed to tell them, yes, we'll take it. (laughs) So wait a second, we're gonna take this, but we don't have any money to pay for it. And he said, within a matter of days, just out of nowhere, people started sending him money. And he said, one person sent him a check for $10,000 and just said, you know, I don't know. I just feel like the Lord put this on my heart that you're supposed to receive this. And so they were able through these random sort of gifts that just came in, they were able to go ahead and secure the place. And they're able to go ahead and start sort of, you know, developing it a little bit. We had a beautiful time. I was actually preaching there last Sunday morning. And, um, but you know, that, that's miraculous. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but people just don't write you $10,000 checks unless God moves on their heart to do it. And so whether it's something like that, or it's seeing people just, you know, radically set free through the power of the gospel or people being healed. uh, These are the kinds of things that were happening then. These are the kinds of things that should mark a church. We also see that they were generous, that they were caring. And again, we, we see here where they, um, they, had, uh, they were together. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods. They divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, now let me just say a quick word here. This particular thing right here was necessary for the, the circumstance that they found themselves in. In other words, this isn't something that is transferable to every church throughout history. Now, all the way throughout the history of the church, yes, there should be generosity. There should be care and concern and helping one another and taking care of one another. But this was a unique situation because remember the people came in from all around the world to Jerusalem. They didn't plan on staying there. They were there temporarily. They ended up Uh, having a prolonged stay because of what God was doing and they didn't want to leave it. But eventually, everybody would have gone back to their own countries and back to their homes. And that's how the gospel would have spread, one of the ways that it would have spread to the different parts of the world. So some people have looked at, the reason I say this is because some people have looked at this and said, well, you know, this is how every church is to function. Everybody is to have all things in common. So we're supposed to sell our homes and cars and clothes and, you know, put it all in a big pot and uh, distribute it and all. And, and some people have even said, you know, the early church was communistic. And yet the reality is, no, it wasn't. Of course, communism doesn't, uh, it doesn't operate on the, the generosity of people. It operates on the power of people to take things from you and then redistribute them as they see fit. So there's no picture of communism here whatsoever. And this wasn't a permanent or a perpetual thing. It was something that happened for the time there for those people. But the, the spirit behind it, of course, is what is important, that there was a generous spirit, that there was a desire to care for others. And that's how churches should be on down through the ages. And notice also that they continued, verse 46, Uh, daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. You know, it was a joyful environment. It was a joyful environment. And it was a, 
it was the kind of thing that you walked into and you just sensed that there was something joyful about it. And joy is such a great thing. You know, it really is. When you, when you come into an atmosphere of joy, there's something about it. It's just, it's so warm. It's so inviting. And it's, it's the sort of thing that, you know, people want to be in an atmosphere of joy. That's how the church was meant to be. An atmosphere of joy. We're rejoicing in the Lord. We're so blessed because of God's goodness and his love and all that he's done for us. But isn't it true that many times throughout the years, the, the church has been the very opposite of a joyful experience for people? And actually, there have been periods of time in history and some people in church leadership at times who thought that the atmosphere of a church is to be very somber and to be very uh, serious and so much so that you would not even think to, to laugh or to smile or, uh, I mean, there, there have been people that, you know, literally thought that the more miserable you were, the more spiritual you were. God help us, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a, that's a great advertisement, right? Come and commiserate with us. We are all depressed and miserable people. Lord help us. So, Three other things I want you to see really quickly. They were a respected church, praising God and having favor with all the people. The, all the people here are the people around them. Now, here's the thing. When the church is what God wants it to be, there's going to be a respect of the church and the culture. Doesn't mean there's gonna be an agreement. Doesn't mean there's not gonna be pushback or, or even um, persecution. But it does mean that regardless of that, there, there's going to be a respect. The sad thing is that the, the church has so often lost respect in the culture because it hasn't been what God has called it to be. It hasn't uh, really committed itself to those fundamentals that we're, we're to be committed to. But when we when we are rooted in the word and when we're in that kind of fellowship that we're talking about here and when we're really worshiping the Lord and praying and seeking him, you know, there's something that happens. God, God gives a favor to his people. And like I said, you know, not to the extent that there's no pushback or persecution even, but you know, times people will say, well, you know, I don't agree with those Christians at all, but, but I, respect, I respect their position because I know that they're... Uh, they're sincere. I know they really, you know, they're, they're serious about their faith. That, that goes a long way. Many years ago, in the early days of the history of our country here, uh, George Whitfield, the famous evangelist, was uh, preaching all throughout the colonies back in those days. And one of his biggest fans was Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was not a believer. He was a deist, really. He didn't believe the gospel. But he would often show up uh, where Whitfield was preaching. And people noticed that, they, that you could find Benjamin Franklin at a, at a you know, wherever Whitfield was, was preaching, Benjamin Franklin was there. And, and someone once said to him, uh, they said, so do you believe what he's saying? And Benjamin Franklin said, no, I don't, but he does. And that's why I come to listen. 
So he himself wasn't a believer, but he highly respected Whitfield because of his, his sincerity and his conviction. So when we are what God wants us to be, there's going to be a respect, not an agreement, but there will be a respect. Years ago, I was in London and I was uh, standing in a place called uh, Speaker's Corner. And Speaker's Corner has a long history of being a place where you know, people just get up and preach, whatever, they preach anything. And uh, over the past, you know, probably 20 years or so, or longer, it has been predominantly a place where uh, Islamic clerics come to preach Islam. And I was, I was standing there one day in Speaker's Corner, and there was an imam. He was up preaching. And in the course of his message, he just kept blaspheming Christ. And I just thought, okay, if this guy says one more thing, I just cannot let this go. So he did. And so I began to challenge him. And, you know, so we stood there. He was up on his little soapbox thing, and I was on the ground. And, and we just had this back and forth, you know, sort of a confrontational thing where I was just seeking to push back and refute the, the blasphemous things he was saying. And um, I was the only Christian there. And it got a little bit tense. And for just a brief moment, I thought... I might have a knife in my back here any moment. I don't know. Seriously, I mean, it was that, it was that kind of frightening. Um, but obviously that didn't happen. So, but anyway, after it was all said and done and the crowd dispersed, uh, he and I had more of a personal conversation. And this is what he said to me. He said, I respect what you did today. And I said, well... I'm certainly not going to stand here and let you blaspheme my Lord without, you know, challenging you back. And he said, well, I respect that. And, you know, that was kind of the end of it. But, you know, this is the thing. They might not agree with us, but if we stand firm in the truth, whether it's you as an individual Christian or us as a congregation or the church collectively together, um, there will be that, that, that sense of respect. And that's what they had in these days. And then the two last things we see is that it was a growing church. The Lord added to the church. It was a growing church. And as we are rooted in those fundamentals, God's gonna bless that and the church is gonna grow. But how does it grow? Well, it was an evangelistic church. You see, the church doesn't just grow without the engagement of the believers. The way the church grows is through believers sharing their faith with other people. That's how it happens. So this, this was an evangelistic church. They were sharing. They were talking about their experience. They were telling their story of what God had done in their lives. And listen, this is a simple but often overlooked reality. The way people get saved is generally through word of mouth. 
That is the primary way that people come to know the Lord. Somebody talks to them. Somebody says something to them. Somebody shows them through their life at work. Maybe, you know, you're, they're, they're working next to you and they just go, you know, there's something different about this person. And then they ask you, you know, what's going on with you? But this is the main way. Now, we often think that, you know, we need some big campaign or we need to do this or and, and, you know, all of those things can have their place, but none of them are a substitute for just good old fashioned talking to people about what God has done in your life. And that's what they did. We all want to see people come to the Lord and they're going to come as we, God's people, open our mouths and as we speak. Now, remember, here we are, we're in the book of Acts. This this thing is just getting started. And the trajectory out from here is that they're going to keep going. They're going to, they're here for a season and they're going to move on. The church in Jerusalem is going to be established, but the people are going to move on. And we're going to find that they're going out. In some cases they're being persecuted. So they're having to go out. But we find as they go, that they preach the word everywhere that they went. And the word preach there means that they talked about it doesn't mean that they were all preachers, like standing on a street corner with a bullhorn preaching, but it means that they were talking about, they were telling about what God had done in their lives. And like I said, this is the good old-fashioned way of churches growing. It's because people tell other people what God has done in their lives. And they get invited to a Bible study. They get invited to a church service. They get invited to a community group. They get invited to something where they then maybe hear a message or, you know, they're, they're drawn closer in, but they come to know the Lord. And the thing that is going to be the, the big attractive thing is the distinction between us and the world. More and more, this has been a problem for a long time, but you know, today it just seems that there's so much emphasis on being, being more like the world as the church. And people seem to think that you know, if, we're, if we're more like the world, we're gonna have a greater impact on the world. The opposite is true. When you're more like the world, the world takes zero notice. It's when there's a difference. It's when there's a contrast. It's when there's something that's, you know, unexplainable. But, you know, there's something different with these people. That's when the world is attracted. I was telling the second service in um, the, the Ang Anglicans, many of them, uh, not all of them, of course, there's some great Anglicans. But uh, among the Anglicans, there have been these, these attempts, you know, to reach the world by being like the world. And I remember when I was living in the UK, um, you would oftentimes hear about a church who was doing an, an outreach event and they would do like the gospel according to Queen. And they would have like a Queen cover band that would come and, you know, do Queen songs. And then they'd try to like, okay, let's extract the gospel out of, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody. What is... Uh, what is the, the how, where's the gospel at in this? And you think, okay, uh, I, I used to be a Queen fan. I went to Queen concerts. I never, ever thought they were preaching the gospel. 
So I don't know how these guys were going to extract the gospel out of the, you know, the gospel according to Queen or the gospel according to the Hugh or the Who or, you know, the gospel according to the Rolling Stones or, you know, it's like, uh, but what, what was their point? Why were they doing that? Well, they thought, you know, if the, if the world sees that we're cool and if they know that we like Queen and the Who and the Stones, then, you know, they're going to want to join us. No, that doesn't work. That's not the means. They need to see something different. They need to see something so far beyond that. They need to see a transformed life. They need to see genuine love. They need to hear truth that, that resounds because nothing in the world sounds like this. You know, the message of the gospel, it's just so glorious, but we we undersell it. We just think, oh, well, you know, we got to find some new package to put the gospel in because the gospel's not good enough. Well, the gospel's the greatest news there is. So we don't have to put it in a package. We don't have to try to present it as the newest, coolest thing. We just present it for what it is. That the great God, the creator, came down to earth in the person of his son and he lived among us, and he died in our place, and he rose again from the dead, and he conquered the grave. There's no message like that. There's no philosophy like that. There's no theory like that. You know, the uh, atheists, they all have their arguments, and they want to debate about this and that and the other thing, and it's like, well, look, I, you know, has any of your leadership risen from the dead? Uh, no. I don't think so. Okay, so let's talk about the one who rose from the dead. And so the church has these marks, learning, loving, worshiping, praying, awesome, powerful, giving, caring, joyful, respected, growing, evangelistic. That's what we see in this church. And this is a model for successive generations of believers to follow. So this is, this is our model. This is what we want to do. And we want to export this as far around the world as we can. And we've been doing that for 50 years. And we're going to keep doing it. Because this is the need for the church as it's described here in the pages of the New Testament. This is what people need in every community. And when you get away from the you know, just the frivolity of Western civilization. And you get into the places in the world where people are really suffering and they're really hurting and they're really wanting some answers and they're really thirsty. Only the gospel will satisfy. And the gospel is satisfying. And I heard stories this past week from friends, both in Israel and in Islamic uh, countries who are saying, you know, as, as difficult it is and as, as the challenges are so huge in so many ways, they said there is an openness like we have never, ever seen, ever. A friend of mine who's in his 50s, he's an Israeli, born and raised in the land. And he said, you know, I have never seen opportunities for the gospel like I'm seeing right now. He told me one, one quick story. He said, I, w I was invited to go to this meeting uh, and I, I walked in and there were 20 uh, very um, sophisticated men and women in this room. 
They were doctors, they were uh, professors, they were scientists, they were all of this stuff. And he said they were all studying the Gospel of John as Jews. <laughs> they're, they're not believers, they're all Jews. They're studying the Gospel of John, they're trying to make sense of it. So they asked him, Could you, what do you think about this? Would you tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what, is, what is John's point? And so here he is, he just said, I just said, well, let's look at, let's look at John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And, you know, he, he went on to explain to them the understanding of the gospel of John as a believer. And they were very interested. They want to hear more. And, and so this is the, the kind of thing that we see happening. And I think, uh, listen, as the world gets more desperate, as things go more and more crazy, I'm, I'm in the middle of reading, um, I'm reading a book on the history of the nation of Israel right now. And, and so I'm in 1948. 1948 is the year that the nation was established. That's five, uh, three years after the end of the Second World War, right? In 1947, uh, India became independent of Britain, and India split in two and became Pakistan and India. And, and during that season of time, there was so much havoc. There was so much craziness in the world. And, you know, all of this migration, and in India, probably a million people perished in the migration between India and Pakistan and all of this stuff. And I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, man, this is really, we're living in a time that's similar to that. The only thing we haven't had is a massive world war. But there's so many similarities to what was happening then just in the brokenness of the world. And as the world becomes apparently more and more broken to people, as they recognize that, you know, this doesn't work, where are they going to get an answer? Well, we have the answer. The gospel is the answer. And the church. But of course, let's face it, the church has such a bad history. It's left such a bad taste in the mouths of so many people because of compromises with power and those kinds of things. But, but we have an opportunity today in our generation to just to be the church like we read about here in the pages of scripture. And that's what we've always got to go back to. And so may the Lord help us as a congregation and as individual believers to really just root ourselves in those fundamentals, God's word, fellowship, worship, prayer, and then let all of those other things that, that proceed from that, let those things flow, let those things happen. The joy and the compassion and, and the power and the desire to share and all of those things. And we can see a great work of God in our day. And I believe that we will. So Lord, we pray that you would, oh Lord, just do great things in these days. We thank you that you gave us a picture of what the church is to be. So we don't have to try to figure it out. Lord, you have shown us right here. And Lord, as this has application to us collectively, and not just us, but to your church in general, but it also has application to us personally. 
So help us, Lord, to apply ourselves to these things. Help us to be men and women who continue steadfastly in your word. Help us, Lord, to be seriously committed to fellowship. Lord, help us to be worshipers. Help us to be men and women who pray in these days. And Lord, from that, as we read here, then great fear fell upon them. Lord, then that, that awesomeness and all of those things, Lord, will emanate from us. And we pray for that. And we pray as we make our journey through Acts that you would just work a great work in us that you might work through us in Jesus' name, amen.